Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The New Statesman. You're listening to Audio Long Reads from The New Statesman the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. In this episode, The Long Shadow of the Iraq War, How One Town Honoured Britain's Fallen Soldiers, written by Jason Cowley and read by me, Hugh Smiley. This article was published in the 15th of March 2023 issue of The New Statesman and online. His name was Lauren Martin Thomas. He was a bomb hunter. As a corporal from 33 Engineer Regiment, the Sappers, he was based at Carver Barracks in Wimbish, Essex, close to the old Quaker town of Saffron Walden. And that summer, he had one of the loneliest and most perilous jobs on the tour of Afghanistan. He was the leader of an advanced search unit in Helmand Province, and his mission as part of the NATO command unit combating the Taliban insurgency against the US-backed government in Kabul, was to find improvised explosive devices, IEDs, which were maiming and killing British soldiers. Nearly 100 of them had died over recent months. Corporal Malton Thomas relished the fierce challenge of his work and was proud that his interventions saved lives, the lives of his comrades as well as of Afghan servicemen and local civilians. But he had no illusions. He understood the dangers as he led his unit along the rough tracks and wadis of Helmand. The IED hunters were admired for their rare courage. Where they went, others could follow. Follow even into the Valley of Death. Especially into the Valley of Death, as the area between Sangin and Goreshk was known. Waking early on this Sunday morning, Malton Thomas felt the familiar churn of anticipation in the pit of his stomach. This was what his body was telling him. He was going out on patrol again. The Taliban and the armed drug cartels were an omnipresent threat. Elusive, implacable enemies. IEDs were being used indiscriminately, not only to kill British soldiers, but to weaken their resolve. The previous Sunday, Malton Thomas had been interviewed by BBC Television for a Remembrance Sunday programme, and he was cheered to know that his brother, Fraser Malton Thomas, the Queen's senior footman, and their mother Anne were watching back in England. The day's task was to clear a path in the area around Jereshk, in the vicinity of Patrol Base Sandford. It was named after Lance Corporal Paul Sandford, killed by a sniper in 2006. He was 23. The base was located 90 minutes from Camp Bastion, Britain's largest overseas military base. What was Corporal Martin Thomas looking for as he moved through the monotonous landscape? He was searching for disturbances in the parched soil, trackside irregularities, mounds and broken surfaces, markers of unusual human activity. He moved slowly, meticulously, as he always did his men following close behind. They knew one false step could be fatal. It was autumn 2009, and for the 28-year-old Martin Thomas, who'd grown up in the persistent rain and damp of the northwest of England, it felt like a fine summer day in Lancashire. In the peak summer months in Helmand, in the dusty, 
arid landscapes of Upper Goresh Valley especially, the temperatures rise above 38 degrees, and the soldiers have no choice but to endure the heat. Even on this November day, Malton Thomas could feel the sweat gathering beneath his helmet and pooling in his armpits. He could sense the dry heat rising and almost hear the silence around him. So intense his concentration as he scanned the landscape, alert to every possibility and sound. Just behind him was the ATO team, ammunition technical officers, who defused the explosive devices his unit discovered. That day, the clearance team was led by Warrant Officer Ken Bellringer of the Royal Logistics Corps, who had spent several weeks training the test lanes at Camp Bastion. So far on this tour, they defused three main types of IED, the time-delayed device, the victim-operated device, and the command-initiated, remotely-detonated device. Malton Thomas felt secure in the convoy of armoured vehicles that had set out from base camp, but out on foot patrol, leading from the front, he simply did not know. The uncertainty had its own peculiar, thrilling intoxication. Sometimes he liked to think of himself as an explorer in some undiscovered land, He was going where others could not, a pathfinder, a pathmaker, clearing the way ahead. Out there, the Taliban insurgents were everywhere and nowhere. He knew they wanted him to die, and the British and Americans to leave in abject defeat and humiliation. But where were they? Like all sappers, Malton Thomas was a multi-skilled tradesman, soldier, combat engineer, accomplished blacksmith. He previously served on two operational tours in Northern Ireland and Iraq. No one had made him join the army as a 16-year-old straight from school. Originally, he'd wanted to be an infantry soldier, but his late father, Chris, a civil engineer, persuaded him to join the engineers so that he would have a trade to call on for the rest of his working life. When he was at home with his family, Martin Thomas never talked about his experiences on patrol. He never mentioned IEDs and bomb hunting. He wanted to protect his wife, as well as his brother and mother, from the reality of what he did, from the extremity of it, the true dangers. He didn't want them to know, and he couldn't really explain, in any event, just how it felt to be alone in the gathering silence, when the boundary between life and death was membrane thin. There were long, silent days when he was sure he could hear blades of grass moving in the faintest of breezes. On this six-month tour, Malton Thomas knew what was expected of him and all who were deployed alongside him on Operation Herrick 11. He offered constancy, expertise, determination, vigilance. His wife said he was army barmy, His friends and comrades called him Loz, or MT. His mother called him My Lauren. Fraser called him My Brother. He was a sapper and searcher, leader and team player. He was a bomb hunter. Warrant Officer Ken Bellringer was moving methodically along a narrow irrigation channel through a churned-up field when Marlton Thomas, just a few metres ahead, abruptly stopped. He seemed agitated. He twisted and turned. What had he found? Mate, Malton Thomas called out. I'm stuck. Really, I'm stuck. Bellringer chuckled, more out of nervous surprise than amusement. Stuck? How could he possibly be stuck? He edged closer, expecting to discover that his comrade's feet were submerged in thick mud, but couldn't quite process the sight before him. Malton Thomas seemed to be standing in a rabbit hole. And yet, he could not move his feet. On closer inspection, Bellringer saw that the hole had unnaturally straight edges. No wild animal could have made it. With mounting alarm, he realised what had happened. Malton Thomas had stood on an IED. There was still time to act, but not much, because the device had been disturbed. They were in what the army classifies as a Category A situation. A Category A situation is where explosive ordnance disposal operations 
commence regardless of the risk to the operator's life. Beringer told GQ magazine, We're told there is nothing you can do, and you know categorically a device is about to go off. Imagine it's a movie and you can see the timer counting down. Then you're supposed to get out of there yourself. Perhaps say you're just going to get a piece of equipment. Bellringer chose not to get out of there. He stayed on and searched for a wire to the device, but there was nothing. He knew the IED had been disturbed, but it could just as easily have malfunctioned. He would not leave his comrade behind. He reached under Lauren Marlton Thomas's arms and prepared to lift him by the elbows. Here we go, Bellringer said. The explosion resounded across the valley. Bellringer sustained catastrophic injuries to his lower abdomen. His legs were blown off above the knee. His pelvis and testicles were shattered. Muscles were ripped apart in his arms, and he lost fingers on each hand. The next day, having been stabilised and put into an induced coma at Camp Bastion, he was flown to England and transferred to the Queen Elizabeth in Birmingham the hospital where servicemen and women wounded in Afghanistan were treated. It was here that Malala Yousafzai was ultimately taken after she was shot in the head by a Taliban gunman. Bellringer, who had a wife and two school-aged children, was considered to be the most severely wounded British survivor of the Afghanistan war. Years of treatment and suffering, psychological and physical, lay in wait. I was thrown through the air, but when I landed... I had no pain, he recalled. I kept my eyes shut. I think something in my head was telling me I didn't want to see the damage. I knew instinctively that my legs had gone. The last thing I remember was someone in the helicopter taking hold of my head and saying, We've got you. You're safe. Marlton Thomas was blown into a nearby canal, where he lay below the surface of the water until the next morning when a search team of divers found him. At the inquest, it was revealed that an order to abort the mission over concern that signals from soldiers' radios could trigger IEDs was never received by Martin Thomas's unit. If that message had got through, he would have stopped. But he carried on. A bomb hunter to the end. It was Sunday evening, and Fraser Martin Thomas was in his room at Buckingham Palace, the office, as the royal family call their London residence, when he received a message asking him to contact his cousin James, a lieutenant colonel in the Army Air Corps. I immediately thought something had happened to Nana, his grandmother, Fraser said. Then he told me. I said, fuck off, James. He's not dead. It's Lauren. No one's going to kill him. I'd seen him the week before on television. He looked fit, tanned, happy. How can it be? I put the phone down. I said to my friend, My brother's dead. The next day, the Queen came to see Fraser. Quote, She was very sympathetic. She was so sorry. He was one of her soldiers. And he was my brother. Lauren Marlton Thomas was a cousin of my wife. His parents, Anne and Christopher, were guests at our wedding and we were told about his death in a phone call. A few days later, we watched televised coverage of the repatriation of Martin Thomas's body through the Wiltshire market town of Wootton Bassett. There was a second hearse carrying Rifleman Andrew Fentiman, a territorial army soldier who had been shot and killed on the same day, while on patrol near Sangin. The repatriation ceremony had special significance because it was the hundredth to pass through the town. The two soldiers' bodies were flown into RAF Lynham in Wiltshire early on the morning of 20th of November, where Fraser, Anne and Lauren's wife Nicola and other members of the Marlton Thomas family were waiting. The bodies were taken from the plane to a chapel at the base. We went to see the coffin and were given time to say a few words to Lauren, Fraser recalled. From Lynham, the hearses carrying the Union flag-draped coffins were driven to the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, passing en route through Wootton Bassett, where townspeople, many formally dressed as if it were for a funeral, 
were lining the long, narrow high street in what had become a familiar ritual of public mourning. The cortege stopped at the town's war memorial, and there Anne laid flowers on the roof of the hearse, carrying her son's coffin. The bell in the 15th century St. Bartholomew's Church tolled solemnly. It was lovely what people did, coming out to mourn, Fraser said. It all started with one person, and grew and grew. And in the end, the whole world knew about this little English town. The repatriations through Wooten Bassett began in April 2007, because of an accident of geography. The town is directly en route from RAF Lynham to the Special Armed Forces Department of Pathology at the John Radcliffe Hospital. The runway at RAF Bryce Norton was under repair, and so the fallen soldiers were flown into Lynham instead. The first repatriation through the town was of two young soldiers killed on patrol in the vicinity of Saddam Hussein's former presidential palace in Basra, in southeastern Iraq, where the British were struggling to contain a Shia insurgency. Ballistic evidence suggested that both soldiers were killed by the same sniper, using the same weapon. A few days later, four more British soldiers were killed by an IED, just outside Basra, and they too were repatriated through Wooten Bassett. The first cortages did not stop on the high street, and were noticed perhaps by only a few members of the local branch of the Royal British Legion. No one can recall for sure who was there that day. But soon, something unusual was happening in the town, and more and more people were coming out to honour the soldiers as they passed through. Even when Bryce Norton reopened, the repatriations continued through Wooten Bassett for a period, and the grieving families also started coming. It was as if the whole town was weeping. Before too long, visitors from elsewhere were arriving on repat mornings. There were collection tins for military charities in nearly every shop and pub window. Foreign media began turning up to report on these ceremonies of mass mourning, just five miles from Swindon. The repatriations caught the attention of President Obama, who said, the small British town of Wooten Bassett represented the best of British character. Reverend Canon Thomas Woodhouse, chaplain of the King's Chapel of Savoy within the Duchy of Lancaster, was vicar at St. Bartholomew's Church throughout the years of the repatriations. In the early stages, there was no plan. The whole thing was so ad hoc, he told me. I don't think anyone can truly claim credit for starting it. People will try to, but lots of people had the same idea at about the same time. Even the tolling of the church bell as the cortege passed was an accident. It just happened that a repatriation was taking place on a Monday when we had bell ringing, and that day someone just decided to toll the bell. It's a long, narrow high street, and it rang as if into a silent cavern. The sound just ricocheted. Afterwards, we realised it was amazing. And thereafter, at every repatriation, as the cortege approached the church, the bell would toll until it had passed and was leaving the town. The British are committed to acts of remembrance. Nearly every village and older town across the realm has a memorial to the dead of the two world wars. Wherever the British have been and settled in the world, they have left behind gardens of remembrance in the form of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission's cemeteries. The Falklands War marked the first time in Britain's military history that the bodies of British soldiers were repatriated. As the military historian John Keegan has written, the dead of the British Empire and Commonwealth of the two world wars are buried in 134 countries, from Algeria to Zimbabwe. The Commission maintains as many as 2,000 cemeteries throughout the world and cares for 23,000 individual graves or plots in non-military cemeteries. It also commemorates the many hundreds of thousands whose bodies were never recovered, or who were found but could not be identified. A central belief of English identity 
Keegan wrote, is that England is a garden, and that to be English is to be a gardener, that in life they are best at home in a garden, and that in death a garden is where they belong. The repatriation ceremonies in Wootton Bassett were quite different from the more familiar, grand, dignified, state-organised services of national remembrance, for all rather than individuals. The Wootton ceremonies did not come from orders of the state and did not take place in churches or gardens of remembrance. They happened spontaneously in public, in the high street. Until 2000, the town had a memorial hall rather than a cenotaph, the Stone War Memorial, raised hands carrying the weight and burden of the globe, was built following local fundraising efforts and would become the focal point of the liturgy of the repatriations. What we witnessed in Wootton Bassett during those four years of the repatriations was nothing less than an act of national commemoration. But it was unofficial of the people and for the dead soldiers and their families. Political leaders did not come, and the royal family were not represented. No one organised it. No one requested it. The Royal British Legion's former national president, Lieutenant General Sir John Keasley, said. It happened because it was the right thing to do. Every repatriated man and woman, of all faiths and none, was treated the same. But there were moments of difference. The families of dead Gurkhas would place flowers directly on the coffins rather than on the roof of the hearses, as the cortege paused at the war memorial. And they would also sing. On one occasion, when the body of a military dog handler was repatriated, hundreds of people brought their dogs in solidarity. It was so silent in the town during repatriations, you could hear people's footsteps. On this occasion, the silence was broken by barking dogs. Thomas Woodhouse said. What happens in Wootton Bassett is not a revolution and does require coordination. But it is still a spontaneous mass movement, wrote the historian Hugh Strachan. If the Prime Minister needs evidence of big society in operation, this might be it. However, he may also have cause to regret it rather than to welcome it. Publicly grieving the dead while the war is still going on has the potential to create problems for policy. The government fears its potential impact on public support for a conflict whose rationale has never been secure. Strachan said that Britain had no grasp of how to mourn the soldier who had died in a war that was discredited by defeat, as the French and Germans had, or in a war that was considered unjust as so many considered the Iraq war to be. The meaning of Wootton Bassett is freighted because, for all the political neutrality of its acts of commemoration, they mark a politically contentious war. In early January 2010, a group called Islam for UK announced that it would stage a demonstration in Wootton Bassett. The group's leader, Anjem Chowdhury, was planning to parade empty coffins through the town to remind the British of the Muslims murdered by merciless coalition forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. If you wanted to spark a race war, this would be how. Islam for UK was in effect another incarnation of Al-Mihajroun, a militant Islamist network. Other related names used by the group included Al-Ghuraba, Muslims Against Crusades, Sharia for UK, Call to Submission, Islamic Path, the London School of Sharia, and Need for Khalafa. A former Wootton Bassett mayor and councillor, Chris Wannell, spoke for many locals when, distressed that the town itself was becoming a source of contention and a site of political conflict. He said, We don't do what we do at Wootton Bassett for any political reason at all, but to pay our respects to those who have given their lives for our freedom. We are a Christian country and a traditional old English market town who honour very much our queen and country. We obey the law 
and pay respects to our servicemen who protect our freedom. Al Mihajroon, The Emigrants, was co-founded by Anjum Chowdhury and Omar Bakri Muhammad in the 1990s. Omar was a Syrian-born Muslim Brotherhood preacher who, after his expulsion from Syria, lived in Beirut, where he joined Hizbaut Tahir, which agitates for caliphism, the creation of a caliphate in the Middle East under Sharia law. Later, after being expelled from Saudi Arabia, Omar was given asylum in London, where he set up a branch of Hizbaut Tahir. Today, the group is most active in the English Midlands. After splitting from it, he created Al-Muhajirun, just as the Balkan Wars and the atrocities in Bosnia were radicalising a generation of European Muslims. Unlike Omar, Anjem Chowdhury was born in England in 1967, the son of a market trader of Pakistani heritage. He dropped out of medical school and then studied law at Southampton University, and after his embrace of Salafism, he would appear as a robed, bearded and bespectacled antagonist in political discussions on British television. For Chowdhury, a passionate advocate of instituting Sharia law in Britain, Islam was at war with the secular West and with the Kafra, or unbeliever. There could be no compromise in this clash of civilizations. He was imperious and articulate and, because of his legal training, and mastery of counter-terrorism laws, he seemed untouchable. Until one day, he wasn't. He was finally convicted under the Terrorism Act of 2000 for inciting his followers to join Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. He was sentenced to five and a half years in prison in 2016 and released on license in October 2018. Before the 11th of September 2001 attacks in the US and the London bombings of the 7th of July 2005, in which 52 people died in coordinated early morning suicide strikes carried out by four young British Muslims on public transport, Britain had been considered a safe space by and for Islamist dissidents and radical preachers. An unofficial covenant of security is assumed to have existed between Muslim groups and the British authorities in the 1990s. The dissident preachers, many of them exiles from persecution in Arab states, were free to proselytise and recruit, so long as there were no attacks on British targets from within Britain. As in the Victorian period, when Karl Marx worked in the great reading room of the British Museum, and Piotr Kropotkin wrote for the anarchist-communist journal Freedom, Revolutionaries and dissidents relished the liberty and anonymity of life in the metropolis. This was the climate in which Al-Muhajirun flourished in the late 1990s and into the 2000s, becoming an incubator for terror right up until the London suicide attacks. A quarter of convicted terrorists in Britain are reported to have been linked to the network. The new Labour government initially showed little interest in an understanding of al-Muhajirun's activities and its malign intent. And the group was deemed by the intelligence services MI5 and MI6 to be an inconsequential, even eccentric threat, clowns rather than criminals. It was much more than that. Mohammed Sadiq Khan, the Leeds-born leader of the London bombers, trained at a terrorist camp established by the Pakistan branch of al-Muhajirun in the northwest frontier province. By late 2009, Al-Muhajirun was using yet another name, Islam for UK. The original group had been banned in Britain in 2008, and the Wooten Bassett repatriations provided an ideal opportunity for Chowdhury to mobilise. Among those provoked was Tommy Robinson, a recidivist football hooligan and de facto leader of the English Defence League, EDL. Aggressive nationalists, EDL activists were self-styled defenders of the embattled English nation, as they saw it, their main enemy being the alien presence of Islam in Europe. Which explains why, on a cold, snowy day in early January 2010, the EDL staged a preemptive counter-demonstration against Islam for UK in Wooten Bassett. 
with frozen slush on the pavements, a couple of hundred EDL members congregated at the town's war memorial. Some of them wrapped themselves in a huge cross of St George, the national flag of England since the early modern period, as if seeking both its affirmation and protective warmth. They spent the rest of the afternoon on a desultory pub crawl, their movements tracked by police officers. In many ways, it was a comically low-key provincial event, more Monty Python than political protest. And yet it hinted at something darker, rising antagonism between English far-right nationalists and radical Islamists. And it was being played out on the high street of a quiet market town in rural southern England, the countryside so central to a particular cherished vision of English national identity, England as a garden. Fearing greater unrest and possible violent clashes in and around Wootton Bassett, the Labour government responded to the proposed Islam for UK march by banning Aljum Chowdhury's group under new legislation outlawing the glorification of terrorism. Wootton Bassett has a special significance for us all at this time as it has been the scene of the repatriation of many members of our armed forces who have tragically fallen, Prime Minister Gordon Brown said in a statement. Any attempt to use this location to cause further distress and suffering to those who have lost loved ones would be abhorrent and offensive. In an article for the Cambridge University student paper, Varsity, Beth Statton, who'd grown up in the town, complained that it was being romanticised, even mythologised, as a kind of Arcadian English idyll. It was nothing of the kind. I've lived in Wootton Bassett for 20 years and seen several repatriations. The town has reached the point where it cannot be removed from politics. Wootton Bassett is a typical English town. My home is a place of interesting people, dodgy politics and tacky high streets, not a benign embodiment of Little England. We cannot succumb to this lie If it becomes entrenched in national consciousness, it threatens to breed a destructive and sinister hatred. In the event, the Islam for UK march never took place. But the controversy surrounding what might have happened delighted Chowdhury. It had successfully highlighted the plights of Muslims in Afghanistan globally, he said. And he promised the group would rise again on another platform with a new name. For Tommy Robinson, The EDL rally was one more step along the long road that would eventually see him back in prison. For Reverend Woodhouse, the aborted Islamist protest march had one big benefit. It served as a powerful expression of unity, bringing together local Christian churches and the Wiltshire Islamic Cultural Centre. The repatriations were about the deaths of all people, not just some, because all deaths in war are tragic. He said, it doesn't matter what nationality or creed you are. Until that point, there hadn't been an easy way of having a cross-religious conversation in the town, and we ended up with much closer links. In the years after the invasion of Iraq and the country's descent into perpetual conflict, you longed to turn away from the truth of what was happening in the region, to wish it wasn't so. You wanted to turn away from the images of suffering and the carnage, the suicide bombings and sectarian bloodlust, the displacement and exile of millions of people, the harrowing loss of life. The destruction of the Ba'ath estate created chaos and the ideal conditions for insurgency to flourish. Following Saddam's fall, Iraq became a theatre of revenge, each murder inspiring another and then another wrote the American war correspondent Dexter Filkins in his book The Forever War. Sometimes it felt like the sounds of bombs and the call to prayer were the only sounds the country could produce, its own strange national anthem. Through all of this, and because of their roadside vigils, the people of Wootton Bassett, in their modest, dignified manner, made sure we would not turn away. They made sure we recognised the human cost of reordering the world, of trying to impose Western values on those who would resist them. They made sure the returning dead servicemen and women were not left to expire off stage, unacknowledged 
by all except those who loved them most. As the cortages of the repatriated passed along the highway for heroes, as it became known, and as the months went by, the Wiltshire town started to be a destination, even a place of pilgrimage. In October 2008, an armed forces parade was held in Wooten Bassett. Question Time, the BBC's flagship current affairs programme, broadcast a special edition on the Afghanistan war from the town. Prince Harry, in a private capacity rather than as an official representative of the royal family, attended a Remembrance Day service at St Bartholomew's. Many of those in the church did not even know he was there. So low-key was his presence. Prince Charles, together with the Duchess of Cornwall, also came to the town to bless the flagpole, a recent gift, and to lay a wreath at the war memorial. Princess Anne, honorary Air Commodore of RAF Lynham, was a visitor. Others were less welcome. Nick Griffin of the British National Party was received with indifference. The bodies kept coming home. I sometimes thought of these dead soldiers as the returning ghosts of Britain's foreign policy misadventures, haunting our unquiet presence. Their fate a poignant testament to the sacrifice of duty, but also to the fraudulent ways in which the war in Iraq had been prosecuted and conducted. Publicly grieving the dead while the war was going on did pose problems for policy, as Hugh Strachan wrote. In time, public support for the wars, but never the troops, collapsed. The soldiers themselves protested that they were being sent inadequately equipped into combat zones. Shortly before he was killed, Andrew Fentiman from Cambridge, who was repatriated alongside Lauren Marlton Thomas, posted a blog in which he revealed he and his comrades had not been issued with the required protective equipment. We are still waiting on these new body armour and helmets that were promised to us, he wrote. You would have seen the story splashed all over the news. They said they would be ready for us, but we hope they will arrive soon. By the time the equipment arrived, it was already too late for Rifleman Fentiman. In July 2016, seven years after it was commissioned, the Chilcot Inquiry into the Iraq War concluded in a 2.5 million word report that the British armed forces had been humiliated in Iraq because of inadequate strategic planning before and after the invasion. The dismantling of an entire state had created the conditions for anarchy. The regime of Saddam Hussein had not posed an urgent threat to British interests at the time of the invasion, and there had remained peaceful alternatives to war. The Blair government had been too certain in its judgment that Saddam possessed weapons of mass destruction, and the intelligence reports that it used to make its case for war were flawed. The safety and the effectiveness of British combat troops were compromised by serious shortages of vital equipment, and the military was overstretched because it was embroiled in unsustainable parallel operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. None of this offered any consolation to the family of Corporal Lauren Marlton Thomas. My mother has never got over it, his brother Fraser told me. A mother should never bury a son. How can you? I can't get over it either. But I saw it from a different angle. He was doing his job. Where did the courage come from? Sometimes, when I watched news reports or read about the repatriation ceremonies during those years, I was reminded of Robert Lowell's poem, Waking Early Sunday Morning. Lowell, a pacifist, had participated in the march on the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. in 1967 to protest the Vietnam War. On the eve of the march, he read the poem, which contains some of his finest lines, to an audience of anti-war protesters. In the graceful, elegiac final stanza, the poet envisages future generations being caught up in endless foreign conflicts because the US was doomed by its great power and sense of manifest destiny to fulfil the lonely role of world's policeman. 
Lowell urges us to pray for the young people who are destined to die in future wars, as indeed thousands of troops would die in America's forever war. Lauren Marlton Thomas had woken early on that final Sunday morning of his life in Helmand Province, and as a dedicated soldier, he died in a foreign war, in a land his country should have known better because of its imperial history in South Asia. During his final year in power, Barack Obama discussed the moral limits of American power and used a pointed phrase to describe his worldview, tragic realism. In a New York Times interview, he cited the opening to V.S. Naipaul's novel, A Bend in the River. Set in an unnamed African country, the reader assumes is the Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly Zaire. The world is what it is. Men who are nothing, who allow themselves to become nothing, have no place in it. Obama said he reflected on the meaning of that sentence and Naipaul's uncompromising vision when, thinking about the hardness of the world sometimes, particularly in foreign policy, and I resist and fight against sometimes that very cynical, more realistic view of the world. And yet, there are times where it feels as if that may be true. Like the philosopher-theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who deeply influenced his thinking on foreign policy, Obama acknowledges the existence of evil in the world, but also the difficulties and dangers inherent in confronting it. As a young politician, Obama opposed the Iraq War, because he understood the risks of attempting to impose, through violence and conquest, Western values of freedom and democracy. He understood the need to show humility in the exercise of power. Great power carries the burden of great responsibility and demands restraint. Perhaps, at times, far too much restraint in the case of Obama's later response to the Syrian tragedy. In the absence of a strategy, the Obama administration laid down its red lines against the use of chemical weapons. When the Assad regime transgressed by ordering a chemical weapons attack on rebel-held Ghouta in the suburbs of Damascus in August 2013, killing hundreds, Obama seemed frozen. US equivocation opened the way for Vladimir Putin's Russia to become, over time, the dominant foreign power in Syria, and the Assad dictatorship did not fall. Sometimes the absence of war has nefarious consequences, and this is surely what Obama meant by tragic realism. The world is what it is. It resists being reordered. In his response to the Chilcot inquiry, Tony Blair accepted responsibility for the failures of Allied post-invasion planning, but staunchly defended the original decision to invade and occupy. With his voice hoarse and weakening, he was described as resembling a broken man by some commentators during the press conference at which he replied to Chilcot. Yet, when we met not long afterwards in his London office, Blair was anything but broken. He insisted to me that the arc of history bends towards progress and enlightenment. He expressed no regrets for taking Britain to war in Iraq and for facilitating the fall of Saddam. For Blair, the 11 September attacks had been a profound shock, but also an opportunity for Britain to redefine its role in the world. We used the horrific attacks to leverage influence over the new Bush administration and, as he saw it, to draw the world's one essential superpower away from hermit security. Every American president I've ever dealt with has always come to power with an essentially domestic program, Blair told me. And all of them have ended up, because this is America's inevitable role in the world, being highly engaged in global affairs. I later asked Jeremy Hunt, when he was foreign secretary in the May government, what Blair had got so wrong in Iraq. Hunt described what happened as a profound breakdown in trust. The Iraq war was a disaster, he said, a lesson in humility and the limits of Western power. It was not just a foreign policy misjudgment, 
but a breach of trust, because Blair used his presentational skills to persuade people of something that turned out not to be true, namely the existence of weapons of mass destruction. Once again, a covenant between the people and the political class had been broken, a pattern repeated over the last 20 years. As George Eliot put it, what loneliness is more lonely than distrust. The governed were losing trust in the governors. The article continues after this break. For the text version of this article and all our long reads, subscribe to The New Statesman for just £1 a week for 12 weeks using our special podcast offer. Just visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From The New Statesman comes World Review, a twice-weekly international news podcast. From Ukraine to Brazil, DC to China, we cover the stories that matter in a world that's constantly changing. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Join us. Just search World Review wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. One summer day, Lieutenant Daniel Clack of the 1st Battalion, the Rifles, one Rifles, was leading his team on patrol around the village of Daktran in southern Afghanistan. The next day, a shura, or consultation, was scheduled to take place with tribal leaders. As the patrol approached the village, it activated a roadside IED. Lieutenant Clack, Clacky, to his rugby-playing friends, was killed, and five of his men were injured. A graduate of Exeter University, whose family lived in Woodford Green on the Essex northeast London borders, Clack had been commissioned into the rifles on completion of his officer training at Sandhurst. 
aged just 24 and engaged to be married, he was a leader of exceptional promise and had been an officer for less than a year. On the 18th of August 2011, he was the 167th and last British soldier to be repatriated through Wootton Bassett. A couple of weeks later, a sunset ceremony was held in the town to mark the end of the repatriations at RAF Lynham. It was the day before the runway was decommissioned and their return to RAF Bryce Norton across the county in Oxfordshire. Members of the Royal British Legion, many visiting from other branches, lined up around the war memorial and raised their standards. A lone trumpeter played. Lawrence Binion's beautiful poem, For the Fallen, was read aloud by a veteran. The Union flag, flown at half-mast on repatriation days, was lowered from its pole and removed. And as many as 5,000 people of all ages gathered on the high street for the sombre ceremony, which was televised nationally. Among the crowd, unnoticed by most, was Prime Minister David Cameron. Not officially there, but just loitering at the back, as Thomas Woodhouse described it. At the end of the sunset ceremony, Reverend Woodhouse collected the Union flag and took it back to the church. There it was, blessed overnight on the altar, before being transferred back to Carterton, a town in the Prime Minister's Oxfordshire constituency. The flag was given to me, and that evening it was like Moses and the Red Sea. The crowd just parted before me as I walked in silence to the church, Woodhouse recalled. The final ceremony released us. We didn't ask to do what we did. We stepped up and nothing had gone wrong. It was an extraordinary period, but one of the strengths of the town is that we just get on with getting on. Life didn't stop, but the repatriations became a crucial and unexpected part of our lives. We were witnessing at first hand and responding to people in deep mourning. Any conversation about the rights and wrongs of the wars happened behind closed doors because the focus in those moments was the grieving families. We just accessed it at our own level and nobody did anything that could be perceived by the outside world as cashing in. For this reason, he delayed a much-needed redecoration of St. Bartholomew's, which would have required a fundraising campaign until after the runway at RAF Lynham had been decommissioned and the repatriations through the town had ended. A few months after the sunset ceremony, the town was officially renamed Royal Wootton Bassett, the first to be honoured with the prefix Royal for a century. Lynham was finally closed as an RAF station at the end of 2012. Two years later, the Cameron government ceased all combat operations in Afghanistan, though a contingent of British troops stayed on as part of a transnational NATO mission engaged in diplomatic, logistical and humanitarian activities for another seven years until the final chaotic US-led retreat. By the time Donald Trump left the White House, the US had squandered in excess of $2 trillion on its military operations in Afghanistan, and 2,448 American service personnel had died, with nearly 21,000 injured. As many as 69,000 Afghan soldiers, as well as 47,000 civilians, had also died in the conflict. The Taliban had offered an unconditional surrender in December 2001, which the Americans rejected. By 2021, Afghanistan was a fully-fledged narco state, the world's largest producer of illicit heroin, and the Taliban controlled much of the opium trade. Toward the end of his first 100 days in the White House, Joe Biden announced that, ahead of the 20th anniversary of the al-Qaeda attacks of September 11th, 2001, all US troops would be withdrawn from Afghanistan. The conflict was never intended to be a multi-generational undertaking, he said in a televised address. And it was time to end America's longest war. Time to end the forever war. There was nothing but doubt in his expressions of confidence, 
and his tone betrayed the reality on the ground. The Taliban had as many as 75,000 full-time fighters, and hundreds of Afghan soldiers were being killed every month. The Taliban had not been defeated, and its leaders were emboldened. The Americans were preparing to cut and run, resulting in the instant reconquest of the country by the Taliban and the creation of the self-styled Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, ruled by Sharia law. As the Islamist group's fighters closed in on Kabul, the remade Afghan state was revealed to be a fiction, and President Ashraf Ghani and other national leaders simply fled to the airport, abandoning the country and its people to their dismal fate, including many who had worked alongside the Americans and their NATO allies. This was a profound humiliation for the Biden administration, and total defeat for the hubristic Western project of nation-building. In Afghanistan, no one feels capable of stopping the movement of history. With all its struggles and calamities, wrote Bruno Messias as he prepared to leave Kabul a few days before it fell to the Taliban on the 15th of August, 2021. Today, the former site of patrol base Sanford is an opium farm. More than half of the opium Afghanistan is cultivated in the fertile areas around the Helmand River. Sangin is the de facto capital of the illicit trade, and fields of opium poppies flourish where Corporal Lauren Marlton Thomas died after his boots became trapped in an IED, and his comrade, Warrant Officer Ken Bellringer, refused to abandon him and went to his aid. What did Lauren die for? We can say this for sure. He died leading from the front, in a land he could never know nor understand. One cold, cloudy spring afternoon, I wandered alone along Wooten Bassett High Street. With the exception of St. Bartholomew's Church and the Grade II listed museums, with its distinctive tapered oolite columns, formerly the town hall, the town is an unremarkable mix of pubs, there were a lot of them, reflecting its distant past as a staging post on the Bath to London Road. Fast food restaurants, charity shops, hairdressers, chemists, more traditional outlets such as an independent butcher, greengrocers, and newsagents, and towards the bottom of the hill, on the road out to Lynham, an infant school, a Methodist church, and some older residential housing. Further up the hill, I paused outside the entrance to the Tatty Town Council offices, On display in a bay window were some of the many gifts received by the council on behalf of the town during the repatriations. Commemorative shields, a NATO plaque, a framed score from the Royal Marines, a soldier's hat. These were the only mementos I could find in the high street of the extraordinary events in this most ordinary of English towns. It had been another world back then, Before Brexit, of course, and the pandemic. And yet, in many ways, we still live in the long shadow of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. The legacies of those wars inform how we think about Britain's role in the world, and how we think about our armed forces. And they tell us something important about who we were back then, and who we are now. For England is a country in which the soldiers themselves, our boys and girls, have never been more esteemed, and our armed services never more trusted. And this at a time when people were rapidly losing trust in politicians, according to the 2019 Hansard Society's audit of political engagement, the military was the institution most trusted to act in the public interest. The conviction that Iraq was a bad war has hardened since the repatriations through Wooten Bassett ended. We like our soldiers, but increasingly, we don't like sending them into harm's way. In August 2013, the House of Commons rejected the Cameron government's proposal to take substantive military action against the Assad regime after the chemical weapons attack in Damascus, the moment Obama's red lines were crossed. The vote reflects the reality that Britain and the rest of Europe are neither able nor willing to play a substantial role 
in these other regions that will define the 21st century, lamented Richard Haas, a senior US diplomat. I get it, Cameron told the Commons after he lost the Syria vote. This was not simply an admission of political defeat by an exasperated prime minister. It revealed something deeper about the anxieties of elites in this new emerging era. Britain's role in the world was changing again. We were not who Tony Blair had believed we were, or who Cameron wanted us to be. We were entering not exactly a new age of isolation, but our horizons were narrowing. No British politician dared now speak of reordering the world. In 2006, General Sir Richard Dannett, Chief of the General Staff of the British Army, warned in a newspaper interview that, through lack of care and investment, the Labour government was undermining the military covenant between the nation and its armed forces over issues such as soldiers' pay, conditions, accommodation and equipment. Blair discussed whether to sack the general after his intervention, but he knew public opinion was turning against him over the number of casualties incurred in wars perceived to have no clear purpose or definition of victory. In his interview, General Dannett had called for the withdrawal of British troops from Iraq. He knew the mission had failed. The original intention was that we put in place a liberal democracy that was an exemplar for the region, was pro-West and might have a beneficial effect on the balance within the Middle East, he said. That was the hope. Whether that was a sensible or naive hope, history will judge. History has already judged. And, to paraphrase David Cameron in different circumstances, we get it. The ultimate meaning of the Wootton-Bassett repatriations remains ambiguous. However, the ceremonies of mourning venerated the dead soldiers without ever seeking to celebrate or claim as just the wars in which they died. The military was becoming increasingly politicised and British society more militarised. England footballers started wearing red poppies on their national team shirts and the names of the fallen were read out weekly in Parliament. But the public was more reluctant than ever to support war-fighting interventions. Britain had been humbled and chastened. We were three years away from the Brexit vote. Small wonder then that, in August 2011, Cameron mingled at the back of the crowd during the sunset ceremony rather than speak from the podium. For him, as for Blair, it must have felt like never glad, confident morning again. Or perhaps that realisation finally arrived for Cameron, the insouciant county set charmer, on the morning after the European referendum when he resigned outside Downing Street, bringing an abrupt end to his six-year premiership. I was absolutely clear about my belief that Britain is stronger, safer and better off inside the EU, he said. But the British people made a different decision to take a different path. After the short address, Cameron, whose government made no preparations in the event of a vote for leave, turned his back on the assembled media and hummed a tune to himself as he went back inside 10 Downing Street, which he and his family would soon be forced to vacate. His political career finished. One warm afternoon during the years of the repatriations, Reverend Woodhouse was leading an outdoor communion service for 300 children at a church primary school, just off the high street, when a low-flying RAF Globemaster C-17, a transport aircraft for operational and humanitarian missions in Afghanistan, appeared above Wootton Bassett. He fell silent and turned to peer up at the brilliant blue sky. The children also fell silent and, as he did, watched the plane gracefully follow the line of the high street as it prepared to land at RAF Lynham. I stopped the service and I said, we are just going to turn and look at the sky. He watched this plane come across the town and out of sight into Lynham, knowing that about an hour and a half later, a body would come past the school. The service continued, 
but the prayers were affected by what they'd seen. The majestic Globemaster in a cloudless summer sky. I wonder now if any of those 300 young people remember that moment as I do, and whether it has had any lasting effect on them, Thomas Woodhouse said. It was serendipity, the plane coming in to land at just that moment, everything so still and incredibly moving. A soldier's final journey to come home to England. The Long Shadow of the Iraq War How One Town Honoured Britain's Fallen Soldiers was written by Jason Cowley and read by me, Hugh Smiley. If you enjoyed this episode, have a listen to Nothing Prepares You, A Journey for Ukraine at War by Bruno Messias, which is linked in the show notes. This has been Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman. This episode was produced by May Robson, Melissa Deans was the features editor, and the executive producer was Chris Stone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe, and rate the show. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.